If you've got your Bibles, let's go. Let's pull them out to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. If you, don't, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. That's okay. There's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down there, fish around for it. You'll find a blue Bible down there. Um, you might find some other treasures down there. I don't know what the kids left in the last gathering. But you'll find it. And in Colossians 3 is on page 1088. 1088 in the blue blue Bible. Um, and you're going to want to follow along. We're going to get there in a minute. But before we do, I just kind of want to set, set up where we're going. Um, we are closing out a series this morning that we have been in for the past four weeks. We kind of hit pause to do a short series called A Fellowship of Sufferings. And what we've been talking about for the past uh, four weeks is that Jesus wants to do work and is doing a work in the suffering of the Christian. I know not everybody in the room is a Christian, but for those of you who are, Jesus wants to do a work. He wants to create a greater relationship between you and him, form you into greater Christ-likeness, make you more like him in the midst of suffering. He does his best work in your life. The Spirit of Christ does his best work in your life in the midst of suffering. And this is a theme that we see throughout the entire New Testament, that people are led into greater flourishing through greater suffering. People are united to Christ even more through great suffering. Every New Testament author speaks to this idea in some way, shape, or form. Right? Peter says, well, I don't know why you would be surprised by suffering. Now, you're, you're Christians. You're emulating the man of sorrows, the one who is acquainted with grief. You're emulating the suffering savior. You think you're not gonna, your life's not going to be marked by suffering? James says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul is the one who, who, who kind of creates this language, a fellowship of sufferings. Because, I mean, I want to know Christ in his suffering. I'm going to be united with him in a death like his. Right? I want this. And for the Christian, we should want it. But the reality is, most of us don't. Okay? We are adverse to suffering. Nobody, nobody wants to suffer. Right? But the Christian should see suffering as, a, as an opportunity to, to be united to Christ in his sufferings. Okay? This also, this kind of the, what kind of led us to preach this, and some of our staff read through a book called The J-Curve last year. Um, and we have a few copies left. We bought like 40 copies of The J-Curve, and there's four left. Okay? And so if you want one, grab it. They're, they're 15 bucks, which is $8 cheaper than Amazon. It's a steal. All right? Uh, we've got four copies left. You can grab one today on your way out. Uh, we're wrapping this up today, so it's kind of last chance to get one of those. But the J-curve is a guy, a guy by the name of Paul Miller wrote this idea. He kind of took, he saw, saw this picture of a fellowship of sufferings. And he said, man, that is, that is completely different than the rest of the world. When the rest of the world enters into suffering, right, they run away from it. That's what we typically do, right? We say, man, I don't want to think about this, so we numb it. We're, there's anxiety and stress in my life, and so I just binge Netflix so that my mind can be numbed. I don't want to think about it. I divert my mind from it. Right? We take up alcohol or drugs to divert our mind from it. Or if you're super type A, right, you just plow through it. You just put your head down, you deal with it, and you get through it and say, done, I'm not worrying about that anymore. Right? But we never grow from it. Right? The, for most people, the life of suffering is like, well, I'm living life, I enter into suffering for whatever reason, something happens in my life, and I run away from it. And I enter into it again. I run away from it. I enter into it again. I run away from it. I enter into it again. And so this, this whole downward stepping of a life that's going to be marked by suffering. You're going to suffer. Everybody is. But for the Christian, this can be a different pattern. The shape of a J is how Paul Miller describes this. Where we enter into suffering, yes, but in our suffering, we are united to Christ 
in this fellowship of sufferings, this relationship of strength, and we come out on the other side and we experience a resurrection like this. We experience a newness of life that's created by the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our suffering. This is what we've been talking about for the past four weeks. I'm going to show you, an oh, there it is, an illustration of this, right? This is how Paul Miller kind of describes it. And he's laying Philippians 3 over it, that I may share in his sufferings, going down to this, becoming like him in his death, and then experiencing the power of the resurrection, being moved into a greater level of flourishing through suffering. Now, if you look at that and you say, that doesn't make any sense to me, go back and listen to the past three weeks, all right? Uh, we, we don't have time to get back into it this morning. But what we talked about last week, we've been talking about these different ways that we enter into suffering, okay? We talked about affliction, which is where something's happening to us, okay? Not by our choice, right? Somebody else is doing something and is bringing suffering into my life. Or just the natural fallen nature of the world, right? There's cancer and disease and, and, and natural disasters, right? It's happening to me and I can't control it. Everybody deals with that, okay? The second, what we talked about last week is, the, is, is love. Love, so often love calls us to willingly enter into someone else's suffering. Paul Miller says we, we bind ourselves to the suffering of someone else because we love them. We see them in their suffering and we willingly enter into it. This is what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus, in our suffering, Jesus says, man, I don't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He sets aside his comfort. He sets aside his power and his might and his glory. He puts on flesh. He becomes a baby, this weak form. He, comes, he enters into, he binds himself to our suffering. Paul says he takes the, uh, the form of a slave, right? He becomes obedient to the point of death. Not just any death, but even death on a cross. This is what Jesus does for us. He willingly enters into our suffering for our good. Uh, last week, after our sermon on uh, the love J-curve and entering into suffering willingly, um, uh, Taylor um, Donaldson sent me a note, uh, and I wanted to read it for you this morning. I asked her if I could, and she said yes. Um, she, in that moment, very clearly, God was saying to her, hey, I have uh, something for you. Let's see if I can find it here. I didn't print it out because I'm an idiot. Um, I, I, have a, I have suffering that I want you to enter into. And here's what Taylor said to me. She says, I have had a very strained relationship with my mom for many years. We don't see eye to eye on most things. And quite honestly, it's just been easier for me to keep her at arm's length, to protect my sanity and my peace. During the sermon last week, I felt God very firmly lay it on my heart that I needed to make amends with her. She has a very small circle in her life. And RJ, that's Taylor's uh, husband, RJ and I are quite literally the only believers in her life. So I was feeling God tell me to release control of the things I'm afraid to lose. This is what we talked about last week, right? When you enter into that, it's going to cost you. And Taylor understood this. It's going to cost her my peace, my sanity, my time, etc. And to move into suffering for her sake, for the sake of sharing the gospel with my mom. I was dreading it, and I didn't want to do it, but I could not deny that this is what God was asking me to do. I know when he calls us to do something that it seems impossible, he will provide a way. After church last week, I went to her house, and we talked for six hours. And it went surprisingly well. Better than any interaction I've had with her in the past 10 years. I was able to share biblical truths with her. And her heart was open to receive it. 
I, feel a, I felt a major weight lifted off my shoulders. And I look forward to a healing and renewed relationship with my mom. All thanks to Jesus. Yeah, th- this is the picture of the Love J curve. The moment Taylor knocks on the door of her mom's house, she is binding herself to suffering. She knows that to walk through that door is going to cost her. She's releasing her grasp on comfort, releasing her grasp on peace, releasing her grasp uh, on, on her kind of her mental sanity, right? She's like, all right, I'm just going gonna, gonna to subject myself to this because I know my mom needs me. I know she does. And I know that God wants to use me in her life. And out of that in willingness to enter in, she experiences the power of Christ. She experiences a greater flourishing. Immediately, a weight is lifted off of her shoulders. Immediately, she sees a, a, she has an experience with her mom that's better than any experience she's had in, in the past decade. Immediately, she's experiencing greater flourishing because she, she willingly stepped into this pain and sorrow and suffering to bind herself to her mom. Now, is this the end of the story? No. Many more J-curves lie ahead for Taylor in this relationship with her mom. That's just the reality of it. But, it, but when we, when we are fix our gaze on Christ and say, man, I'm going to live my life like you, I'm going to draw near to you, and there's greater flourishing in that. And we need to understand that truth. We need to, we need to believe that. We need to believe that Christ has something greater for me on the other side of it if we're ever going to actually willingly enter into suffering, especially the kind of suffering that we're going to be talking about today. Okay? The last way that we enter into this, and what we're going to talk about today, is what we call the repentance J-curve. This is what Paul Miller calls it. The repentance J-curve. Okay? Repentance J-curve is where the suffering that we're experiencing in my life, this, this, all of the negative, the anxiety, the stress, the whatever it is, the sorrow, the pain, it's being created by me. I'm the one doing it. I'm the one causing pain in my life and in the life of other people around me, my spouse, my kids, my friends, whatever it is. I'm the one doing it. It's my sin. Okay, Sin is a churchy word. It's in the Bible. And we, we throw it around a lot. And most people don't even know what it means, right? Maybe you're brand new to church. Right? Sin is actually an, an archery term. It means to miss the mark. Okay, We're aiming at a target. And the target is Jesus. I, I, I want to be just like Jesus. The glory of God, that's the mark. I'm going to be just like him. And every day I'm missing that mark. Sometimes I miss it by an inch. Sometimes I miss it by a mile. All of it is sin, right? Maybe I m- murder, not that I've murdered anybody. Uh, murder is like I'm missing it by a mile, right? And maybe I, I, I cheated on a test, missing it by like a few inches, okay? But it's all sin. Now, not all sin is the same. It's not all the same, but it's all sin. I'm missing Christ. And when, I, when, I'm, when I'm nearest to Christ and when I'm most like Christ is the greatest moments of flourishing in my life. It's when, I, it's when I am who I was created to be. And so every time I miss, whether it's an inch or a mile, I'm bringing suffering and pain into my life and often into the life of the people who are closest to me, friends and coworkers, family members, the people who are experiencing the suffering that I'm bringing Every time I miss the mark of being like Jesus. And so we want to talk this morning about how do we, how do we get better at and closer to hitting the mark. And it's through repentance. Repentance, okay. Um, So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read for you this text from Colossians 3. And this is what we're going to sit in this morning 
uh, here together. So Colossians 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Okay, If you're following along in your Bible, I hope you are. Here's what Paul says to the church in Colossae. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, there's the J-curve language, and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's the uptick of the J-curve. Now look at verse 5. Put to death, there's more J-curve language. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, passion, evil desires, covetedness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, malice, ra- sorry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, so Paul in this text is laying out two very clear two J curves. In the first half of the text, he's laid out the J-curve of justification. He says, since then, I lost my space. Uh, For you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ. There's a time in your life where you died, your old self, who you once were, is no longer who you are. You are now a new creation in Christ. You're a new person in Christ. There's this new birth that has taken place, right? We call this regeneration. You were regenerated. Everything that was old, everything that was before Christ, the way you were living and the person you were is no longer the moment you gave your life to Jesus. And I know, again, not everybody in the room has given their life to Jesus. But for those of you who have, in that moment, there's a supernatural transformation that takes place. And we call this justification. Justification is, again, it's another church. There's going to be a lot of churchy words today, okay? I'm I'm going to do my best to... Define them all for you, okay? Justification, right, is this moment, it's an instant where you are made just. You are justified by the power of Christ, his death and his resurrection. His blood covers us. It's the moment where our minds understand who Christ is and what he's done for us, and our hearts take the posture of that. We realize, oh, there is a king, a king of kings. And it's not me. And we surrender our lives to him. We say, man, this life that I was living is no longer who I am anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. I've been made righteous. By the blood of Christ on the cross, I've been cleansed, washed, white as wool, pure as snow. There is no longer sin, a stain of sin in me or on me because Christ has justified me in an instant, in a moment. It's gone. And at that moment, we begin a process of another big churchy word, sanctification, which is a lifelong journey of growing in our love for Christ and our desire to be more like Jesus and growing in our hatred for sin. I'm going to show you a little uh, chart of this that maybe will help you. The first time I saw this, it just helped me a ton, right? So on the far left, that little short little line on the far left, that's, that's your birth, okay? Uh, that's, that's just you. And then you're kind of living your life, just whatever, doing, doing whatever for your own glory, your own kingdom. 
And then that little circle is the moment of regeneration. It's the moment where you put your faith and your trust and your hope in Christ. And in that moment, that, sh- that line goes straight up. In that moment, you are justified by the cross of Christ. You are, in the eyes of your, you are clothed in his righteousness. You are given his glory in that moment. You are fully justified. You've been made righteous, made just in a moment, in an instant, by the power of Christ. He has purchased you. And yet, here we are still living this life. And so that jagged line is sanctification. It is jagged. It says up and down. There's days when I'm more like Jesus and I'm near to Jesus and, and, and I'm experiencing the flourishing life that Jesus has on offer. And there's days when I am living in my sin and it's kind of this constant up and down, but always moving upward and becoming more and more like Jesus until the day I die. And I've entered finally into the rest, glorification. I become fully, completely glorified in Christ by the power of the cross. Okay? Now, all of that to say that that jagged line, that is the process of repentance. Every single day, again and again and again and again, that's what's moving us upward. These like million little J curves moving me upward to be more like Jesus. So what is repentance? Um, So often preachers will say, well, repentance is if Jesus is over here, and I'm walking this path of sin. Repentance is the moment that I stop and I turn back to Jesus. And that's true. I'm not going to argue against that. But I think it's way, way, actually way, way more than that. It's way more than that. Because how, how is this a fellowship of sufferings? How is this painful? And, and the, what I want to communicate this morning is that repentance is absolutely painful. It has to be. And I think that when we don't describe it this way, when we don't understand it this way, we're actually hurting the church. We're hurting you. We're hurting me. If I don't view repentance as, as painful, then I, won't, I don't actually know what it is. And I don't know how to do it. I don't know the process of repentance. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, uh, put it this way. In the 1800s, Spurgeon said, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin. A mourning that we've committed it. A resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind, a very deep practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. It's the moment where we say, I hate this. Whatever the sin is that I've been doing, whatever this thing is in my, I'm growing in my hatred for this thing, and I'm growing in my love for Jesus. I once hated Jesus. As I built my own kingdom and lived my own life and was completely living in rebellion to him, but now I love Jesus. And I once loved sin, my own selfish ways, my own greed, my own lust, my own desires. Like that's what I was pursuing. Especially, and, I'm, and I'm beginning to hate this and love him. J.R. Packer wrote it this way. He said, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much of you, as you know of God. For as your knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Right? It's that picture of sin earlier that I was talking about, kind of like just missing the mark. When you first become a follower of Jesus, 
your understanding of Christ is not perfected, okay? It's not. In fact, it won't be until you, you lay eyes on him in glory, okay? But as you grow closer to him, it becomes more and more clear, and you can see the target. You can see him, and you can begin to know him in, in a deep and intimate way. And as you know him, your understanding of sin is also growing. And when you first become a follower of Jesus, you understand, okay, yeah, there's sin, there's big sins, right? Murder and cheating and lying and stealing. Okay, there's these big things, and I understand that. But as you grow in your knowledge of sin, you realize, man, there's so many little things that are causing me to miss the mark. And as your knowledge, and they're in me. Your knowledge of yourself grows. Your knowledge of Jesus grows. Your knowledge of sin grows. And as that happens, re- repentance, this act of repentance, is becoming refined greater and greater and greater and greater as we're getting closer and closer and closer to hitting the target. Repentance is making us more like Jesus. So now the question is, how does any of this involve suffering? How does me turning away and understanding my sin and hating my sin and loving Jesus more, how does it involve suffering? Paul Miller in the book, The J-Curve, I love uh, this quote, how he said it. He said, if Christ is going to be formed in you, if you're going to become more like Jesus, and you're going to know him more, the pieces of you need to be nailed to the cross. The painful thing, the thing that hurts. Repentance is not just acknowledging sin. That's confession. We can do that. We can confess our sin. We can say, man, oh, man, I, I messed up in this thing. I've been, I've been a little angry this week, and I've been a little grumpy with these things. I've, I've experienced, uh, you know, I was, I was harsh to this person. I shouldn't have said that thing. We can kind of acknowledge it. We can say it. But that's not repentance. It's not repentance. That's confession. Repentance is the work of removal. We must cut it out of our lives. I love how God says it to, in, through the prophet Joel. In Joel 2, uh, God is talking to the people of Israel who are far from God. They're far from God. They've, they've sinned so much. And God says this through Joel. He says, yet even now, even though you're so far from me, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Right? I love this idea, this language. Even though they're so far from God, God says, you know, you can come, still come back. You can still come back. But he says this, rend your hearts, not your garments. In ancient Israel, there was this practice of when, when you encountered kind of brokenness, when you encountered sorrow, was, to, was to, rend your, to rip your clothes, to tear your garments, to rip them off and put on sackcloth and ashes and kind of go into this season of mourning. And, and God says, no, 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 don't rip your clothes, rip your heart. Rip your heart. You see, it's this picture, this image of sin. Sin is like a, like a lure, like a fishing lure. And it looks attractive. You see it. Lust takes root. And it looks attractive. Greed takes root. And it looks attractive. This, this, I, this, I, I, um, this idol takes root in your heart. And it looks attractive. This, this picture of, the, of a better future. The way things should be in your mind. Where you are king, it looks attractive. And you bite it. And it has hooks in it. And it hooks in your heart. And lust gives way to pornography or 
uh, fornication or adultery. Greed gives way to lying and stealing and cheating or a way of life that is just fully pursuing this thing. Idolatry gives way to a way of life that rejects the way of Jesus and puts me in the center as king. And it's, it's hooks in my heart. It's pulling me farther and farther and farther away from Jesus down this path of sin. And I'm becoming less and less and less and less like Jesus as I, as I give myself to this. And God says, don't rend your garments, rend your heart. Rip it out of your heart. You've got to rip the sin out of your heart. It's painful, it's violent, it's scar-inducing. But listen to me. It is the way of joy. It's the way of peace. It's the way of flourishing. It's the only way back to Jesus. It's the only way back to Jesus. To do violence to our sin. To rip it out of our heart is the only way back to Jesus. This is what repentance is. And so how do we do this? Each week in this series, we've gotten super practical and I've given like practical steps on what does it actually look like to practice the, the J-curve of love or the J-curve of affliction, what does it actually look like to practice the J-curve of repentance? Okay, I'm going to give you three steps real quick, okay? Step one is to see and stop. See and stop, right? Not stop and see, see and stop, okay? This is, this is the first step. It's always, the first step is always identification. We've said this kind of all along to stop and say, okay, as, as I'm experiencing affliction, to stop and say, okay, what, what, is, what am I actually experiencing? What's this actually costing me? When we enter into the Jacob of love to stop and ask the question, man, what is it that I'm grasping that I don't want to let go of in order to enter into someone else's suffering? Here, again, we got to get specific. You can't just stand there and be like, oh, man, oh, I messed up again, right? We have to get specific. What specifically am I doing that is causing this pain in my life or causing the pain in people's lives around me? What is my sin specifically? we got to bring it into the light. Uh, this past Thursday, I went to the Woods Cross High School wrestling tournament. Um, and we, we walk in the room. It's just me and my boys. And so I'm trying to corral these two little kids. And uh, the room place is packed. they got the lights off because they're, like, introducing the wrestlers. And uh, I'm trying navigating my way through. And this... This gigantic high school kid, um, this, he's a big dude, he's on his phone, and he's walking towards me in this crowd. And I can't really move, it's like shoulder to shoulder, and he's, he just keeps coming towards me. I'm like, what am I going to do? He's like looking down, like on his phone, and I'm like, what is he going to do? And he gets like this close to me before he's like, looks up, he's like, oh. And he just looks like back down and kind of walks around me and keeps on going, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what are you you're in a crowded, dark room. Get off your phone for two seconds. Like, golly. And as I began to think about this, and I was like frustrated in the moment. Like, you're an idiot. I shouldn't call him an idiot. But he's a high schooler. So um, in the moment, I'm thinking, golly, like, this is what we do with sin. So many of us, we're like walking this path of sin with our the blinders on, just so engrossed in ourself and our own desires, the desires of Paul says, the desires of our heart, the desires of our flesh. It's got its hooks in us and we don't even know it. And all of a sudden we stop and we, we, we look, we see it, somebody calls it out in our lives. Somebody lovingly speaks into your life. Or the pain of it becomes so great, you kind of stop and you look around and you're just like, oh. And you just kind of keep on going. Like, you're just like, Whatever, like it's, you're, it's so in you. 
We refuse to get specific and say, this is what I'm doing. And rip it out of our hearts and lay it before. This is why we have path groups at Flourishing Grace. These small groups of two, three, four women or two, three, four men. A safe place where we can practice confession and repentance together. We can say, this specifically is the thing that's doing damage to my relationship with Jesus. It's right here. And I need to kill it. I need to get it out of my heart. I need to get it out of my life. We lay it before the people we trust. We say, this is what's going on in my life. And it's destroying my relationship with Jesus. It's destroying my peace. It's destroying my flourishing. We must, we must grow in our ability to identify sin. And we must master that ability. It's like the soldier in battle who, who's, it's like uh, contact, making contact with the enemy versus like having a radar, right? I don't, know if you, I don't know if you've seen like a modern war movie, right? Like soldiers in Afghanistan kind of just doing their daily routine patrol, making sure the Taliban's not doing anything they shouldn't be doing. They're just kind of walking around doing their patrol. And all of a sudden, right, bullets start flying and hitting all around them. Like, contact, contact, contact. And they scatter. They find, they find something to hide behind. They return fire on the enemy, right? It's so the moment they realize they're in trouble because bullets are already flying at them. They find the enemy in the way that you never want to find the enemy, right? This is, how we, this is how we engage sin all the time. We find that we're in sin because of all the pain and the suffering. We, we look up and say, oh my goodness, what a mess I've gotten myself into. Versus, like somebody who has a radar, like an admiral on a battleship. He's like, there's the enemy. Let's go find them. Let's go hunt them down and kill them. We, we must become people who are more like a, have a radar than somebody who's just kind of wandering around waiting to get shot at. We must be people who are just masters at hunting down sin and eradicating it from our lives. Which leads us to, next, to step two. Um, I've lost my place. Step two is turning through prayer, right? Step two is always prayer. And we've said that all along through this whole, this whole series. Step two is always prayer. Step one is always identifying. Step two is always prayer. It's the moment where we realize, oh, oh, oh. I'm not strong enough to do this. This is not in my power. I'm so weak. Look at this situation I've gotten myself into. Look how far I am from Christ. I don't have the ability to do this. I need Jesus. And I don't have the power to kill my sin. Only the cross can do that. So I need the Spirit of Christ in me. I need the power of the cross in me to put to death this sin. This is where Paul gets that language of putting to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I can't do that. I need the Spirit of Christ to do this. Okay? This is the moment where we get, get serious about killing our sin. The language of killing sin used to be common language in the church. But somewhere along the way, we're like, that's too violent. Right? We, can't, we can't talk that way. Like, what are kids going to think? But in, this is critical. That we view sin as something to be killed, not something to be avoided, or not something to be just like mourned or sorrowful about. No, no, no. It's something to be murdered, to be killed. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, kind of wrote the book on this. wrote a book called Overcoming Sin and Temptation, John Owen. Um, and I think every Christian needs to read that book at some point in time in their journey. And the, kind of the famous line is this. He says, do you mortify, right? Do you put to death? Do you put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Every day are you doing this? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And he says this famous line, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is the enemy of intimacy with Jesus. 
It is the destroyer of joy, the destroyer of peace, the destroyer of all human flourishing is sin. It leads to our spiritual destruction, but it also leads to our physical destruction. Sin destroys marriages and families and relationships and friendships. It is constantly waging and tearing us apart, warring against us. And so Owen says, be killing it or it will be killing you. I want to live. I want to live. I want to experience the life that Jesus has on offer. Therefore, I kill. I become a murderer. I kill my sin. How do we do this? We do it through prayer. Again, this is the moment where we realize our weakness. I can't do this. My will is weak, but yours is strong. So not my will, but yours be done. Spirit, do a work in me. Christ, let the power of the cross have its full effect on my heart. I cannot rip this out. So many of us have lived in the same pattern of sin for years, trying to do it on our own. It's Christ and Christ alone who will do this. Again, Owen, in the same work, he says this. He says, first, step one, beseech God again and again that it may depart from you. If you abide in this attitude, God will either speedily deliver you out of it or give you sufficient grace not to be utterly foiled by it. Second, fly to Christ, knowing he will help you in a time of need. Call to mind his promises of assistance and deliverance. Ponder them in your heart. Rest upon them, knowing that God has innumerable ways to deliver you. In the moment that we see our sin, the moment that we're kind of walking through this with our head down, staring at the thing, blinders on, the moment we realize, oh, we see it and we stop. In order to turn, we must do violence to sin. We must kill it. We must murder it. And we must do it by the power of the cross, not the power of Josh. I need Jesus to step in and eradicate this sin from my life. And so the first thing we do is we beg God to move. We beg him to move. Do you cry over your sin? When was the last time you just wept over missing the mark in Christ? Do you scream back to Jesus for help? Do you know your need for the Spirit moment by moment? The cross is the killer of sin. Take yours up and follow after the one who covers you by his blood, who has been tempted as you have been and has prevailed the one who sees you in your sin and still lovingly calls you back, still lovingly says, even now, come back, repent, turn, rip it out, and let's go. And this leads us to step three is to walk back. This is experiencing the power of the resurrection, experiencing the greater flourishing that we have in Christ, to experience the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, to experience greater joy, greater delight, greater peace. As we return to Christ, peace rises in us. Prayer becomes more powerful. Anxiety diminishes as sin is removed in our life. Presence, the presence of Jesus is experienced. A burden is lifted. There's joy in overcoming sin. A knowledge that the Spirit of Christ has been at work in me and is working in me. All of this is coming to life as I return back to Christ, as he pulls me back lovingly and kindly, pulls me back to himself. And only Jesus can do this. But we have to be careful because what I see a lot and what I've done a lot in my life 
is that when, when, when the suffering of my sin becomes so great that it awakens me to it, and I realize, oh my goodness, usually, here's, here, let's be honest, let's be real. Usually, it's because you got caught. Not because you confessed it. Okay? Confession is something that, for mature followers of Jesus, people who have been doing this for a while, right, it's something that we have to work to get good at. That's the radar versus the contact, okay? Contact is, you're busted, all right? Whatever it was you were doing, you just got caught. And it's in that moment where, yes, you begin to confess, yes, you begin to bring it in the light because you're forced to, Yes, maybe you even take it seriously. And yes, you cry out to Christ. And yes, you say, I can't do this. And yes, you do all the things right from that point on. But the one thing you do wrong is this. You know you've been caught and everybody knows. And so as you're returning to Christ, you are carrying with you the guilt and the shame that came with getting caught. And you've forgotten the first J-curve. Justification. You've forgotten that on the cross, the one who stands here, the one that's welcoming you back with in loving arms, paid for all of that. He gave his life for the guilt and the shame because you are justified. You are completely cleansed, white as wool, pure as snow. And to carry the guilt and the shame of your past sins around in your life, and that is, it, that is diminishing the power of Christ on the cross. And so somebody this morning, you just need to hear this. Listen, whatever it is that you're carrying, and maybe you've been carrying it for years, got to drop that weight. You've got to let it go, knowing that Christ has removed that. You're putting a burden on you that, that he just hasn't put on you, that no one else can put on you. You're putting it on yourself. And the truth is, Satan is the one putting it on you. He wants you to carry that around. He wants you to believe that you're not fully cleansed, that you have to work in order to gain God's favor, in order to gain God's love, in order to come back to Christ. There's things you need to get yourself right. That's not true. Jesus says, come back. Just as you are. Release all of those things. I've cleansed you. It's the power of the cross. Not because of anything you've done. You didn't didn't do anything impressive to to gain this. It's all grace. He did it for free. So we release our grasp. We come back to him. I'm going to give you one more John Owen quote because this morning's sermon is sponsored by John Owen. Um... This is not from Overcoming Sin and Temptation, but it's my favorite John Owen quote, so I'm going to read it for you. He, Jesus, can make the dry, parched ground of my soul become like a pool in my thirsty, barren heart as springs of water. Yes, he can make this habitation of dragons, this heart which is so full of abominable lust and fiery temptations, to be a place of bounty and fruitfulness unto himself. That's repentance. It's the work of Christ in us. It's where, it's where everything that is earthly in me, this, only the Puritans, a habitation of dragons. That's my heart. That's my heart. It is wicked at every turn and in every single way. But Jesus can turn it into this sweet pool of joy and delight for his glory, not for mine, for my joy, for his glory. And he wants to do it, and he wants to do it today. 
and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, on this whole path of sanctification up into the moment where we are fully glorified in Christ. We experience that fully. For all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, but Jesus wants to move you, ticking you upward further and further and further and further to be more and more and more like him, closer and closer to the target every day of your life. Transformation of the heart takes place here in repentance. We are putting on a new self, as Paul says. We're experiencing the power of the resurrection. We are united to Christ even more through our suffering of repentance. We walk in a newfound freedom, new delights, new mercies, new joy, all from Christ. But the only way to come to this place, the only way is through the cross, through a fellowship of sufferings, through death to ourselves, death to our sin, death to our old self, the J curve. Violence and pain must be done to our sin. And then tomorrow, we get up and we do it all again. This is the way of Jesus. It's the path of sanctification, the path of flourishing. It's where joy is found. And so I, I want to ask you this question, friends. And what is it in you? What is God opening your eyes to? And where do you have the blinders on? Where are you looking down? Where are you ignoring this? Where is the sin in your life that is hidden? And you know it's there, but you don't want to call it out. You don't want to be specific about it. You just keep being vague and general. And you don't want to fully confess it. You just kind of partially confess like these, these little symptoms of it. What's the root of it? What's got its hooks in you? James says, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, then we are a liar. But for those of us who are quick to confess, he is quick to forgive us of all of our sin. So where is it? Where is it in you? Don't say you don't have it. You might say, man, I don't know. Then we need to get busy learning to identify our sin. But for those of us who say, I know exactly what it is, and I've been burying it for years, and I've been avoiding it for years, I've been numbing myself to it, I don't want to think about it, right? we got to rip it out. We need to do violence to our sin and turn to Christ and say, only you can, only you can do this. I need you more than I need the breath in my lungs. So show me the way back to you. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we come before you this morning. This last sermon in this series, and I know it's tough, and I know it's hard. This is the hardest one, because it's all on us. We are the ones doing the destruction. We are the ones who need the pain and the sorrow of repentance in our lives. But we know that's where the joy is found. And so would you, would you increase our mourning over our sin? Increase our joy in being found in you. Increase our hatred for the things that drive us away from you. Increase our delight in the one who brings us back again and again and again. Holy Spirit, would you help us today? Would you illuminate the sin in our lives? Would you help us to be people who are bold, who step up, confess it, lay it bare, rip it out of our hearts? Would you help us in that endeavor? In Christ, would you quickly call us back to you that we might walk in a newness of life, free of guilt and free of shame, 
and full of flourishing. Praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let's stand and let's sing one last song together as we go this morning.